And if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 this morning for one final time uh, in the book of Revelation for now. Uh, we began a series called Church Age a few weeks ago, five weeks ago actually, uh, inspired by the first few chapters of the Revelation, uh, which is the last book of the Bible. Uh, now, if you haven't been with us, don't worry. Um, this might be the last uh, of, five, of a five-part uh, series and conversations, but like most movies or series, uh, the last part usually the best part or maybe the most important part. Uh, so I think it'll be interesting in and of itself. Uh, we've learned a lot about the book of Revelation and from the book of Revelation um, over the last couple of weeks. We've learned that it's uh, a book unlike any other in the Bible, and it's fitting that it comes last um, in God's word. And, and something we've repeated week after week after week, which I hope the more we hear it, the more it'll be ingrained in our hearts and the more we'll be inspired to turn to this book more often. Uh, we've learned the book of Revelation is a timeless resource for the church to encourage and equip us on our mission to live for Jesus and to spread his gospel. So if you've ever looked at Revelation as an intimidating book, as a book that's full of mystery and full of vagueness and full of things that maybe frighten you or worry you or, or just hard to understand, I hope that we've kind of broke the ice a little bit. And again, I know there's so much more to it than just the first couple chapters, but I hope that we've kind of broken the ice and, and brought, broke, brought down the level of entry of this book and I hope we've learned, and I think we have, that the book of Revelation is a timeless resource for the church, encouraging us and equipping us on our mission for the Lord. Re Revelation is a crossroads. When it was written, it served as a crossroads for a new age. All that precedes it uh, in terms of the biblical timeline um, had led to this moment, to this age that it was opening up to, and we've been calling that age the church age. And maybe you wonder, why do we call it that? Uh, well, the idea that there is this designated time, uh, a designated time period in which God is using the church uh, to spread the gospel um, is talked about all throughout Scripture, predicted and preceded by all of Scripture. Um, alongside every other progression of, of the last 2,000 years, God has used his church to be a light and to spread the word of God. And it's really fitting with how God has worked throughout history um, as revealed in the Bible, God used Israel to prepare the world for a Savior. Um, that's recorded uh, in the first half of the Bible. Uh, then God sent that Savior, Jesus Christ, to build his church, to plant his church, to start this movement that we have inherited. Uh, Jesus took what was given by the Jewish prophets and fulfilled and fleshed it out. And then he raised up his own apostles and further uh, gave them teachings and, and led them to build this movement. And his movement has been growing ever since on this very foundation. The book of Ephesians puts it this way. Talking to the church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That's referring to you and I, every believer that reads that text. You and I are members of the household of the family of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we've talked about this. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Built on the foundation that is given to us in the word of God. Of course, Jesus himself is the cornerstone. What gives it direction? What gives it understanding? What makes it all come together? The cohesive thing that binds it together. Front to back, he is the theme. He is the message. From beginning to end, he is what it's all about. 
in him, in whom the whole structure is joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So on this foundation, under, his, under the Savior, under his leadership, under his guidance, we are being built together into who he has always designed us to be. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in this age, in this church age, God is raising up and bringing together people like you and I and through our gatherings and through our ministry and through our coming together and going together, the Spirit of God is with us and through us, he is changing our world, preparing us for what's next. Revelation helps us understand that the foundation has been prepared for us and that the church was fully ready and capable of staying on mission and finishing its mission through whatever would come against it. Revelation also makes it very clear that the church age will come to an end one day. Now, that's not to scare or frighten anybody. It's just the fact that this time that we're a part of, this era we're a part of, it will come to an end one day. We may all be in heaven before that day comes, but this age of the church in which God is preparing people for eternity, this age will end one day. And we've already seen that throughout the first couple chapters of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus said, John says he is coming in the clouds. In chapter 3, both verse 3 and verse 11, if you remember, Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly to the churches he addressed. This corresponds with how the church age officially kicked off back in the book of Acts, where the Bible, before the Bible was even finished, as the church was just getting going, remember how Jesus started the movement. Acts chapter 1, we all know this verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now we know that. We, we remember that from Acts. Jesus started it and he commissioned the church to spread the gospel to the very ends of the earth. But maybe you don't remember this part. And when he said these things, as they were looking on him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Can we repeat that yellow part together? This Jesus will come in the same way. Do you hear that? So as this age began with Jesus ascending to heaven, this age will end with Jesus descending and calling us to him. The Bible is clear that this age we are blessed to participate in had a beginning and it will have an ending. No one knows how long it will last. No one knows and maybe people question the duration, but we've learned that the reason for its continuation, the reason why the church age has lasted as long as it has and may very well last even longer is this. God is patient with every sinner. So the church must be patient with every season. We've talked about some of the different seasons the churches of Revelation were dealing with, the trials, the temptations, the tests, the troubles. But God is patient with every sinner to come to him. So we must be patient and therefore faithful in every season. God promises he will restore this earth one day, but he waits for more people to return to him. 
We've talked about how and what this means for us as we are on mission. We must endure hardships and trials that will come against us. And we must also escape temptations and tests that attempt to get between us and God. The first three chapters of Revelation talk specifically to seven churches of the country of Turkey, in which are representatives of the churches that would come after them, even us to this day. Uh, these churches have been planted by Paul or were planted by Paul or his partners. We're now being watched over by John, uh, who's writing this book. So they were closely connected to the early days, the eyewitnesses of Jesus in his movement. But what's clear by what John gives them, even so very early on in the movement, they were all given reminders of how this world would not cease to wear them down and pull at their commitment to Jesus. And if you remember, five out of seven were given stern warnings because they had already in many ways walked away from God. And the other two were encouraged to hold on because they were going through intense persecution. We get the sense that the message to the church was and always is from the book of Revelation forward. As we patiently wait and faithfully serve until kingdom comes, we must continually renew and reform our commitment to God. Renew means to make new again. Back in chapter 2, God told the church at Ephesus to remember where you started and go back there. Renew, make new again, rededicate, recommit as this world tries to pull you away. Reform means to check the connections and make sure that there's nothing in between you and God. Tighten or rethread those connections. Back in chapter 3, Jesus told the church at Sardis to strengthen what remains. The whole book of Revelation, which we'll study in the new year on Wednesday night, is about the church facing tests and temptations, trials and troubles, being called to hold fast, hold serve, because the world's a dark place and needs a light to show it the way back to God. And God has placed us, a light, the light in the world. Each of those seven churches is referred to as a candle or as a lamp. As, a core, as if the core of their being and the identity uh, that, that is you know, most important to them is that they are a light to their world. I gotta ask us, is that how we understand the local church? That we are a light? That we are a candlestick? We are a lampstand? Do we think about risen church as a lampstand, as a candlestick, as a source of light? Which means that you and I are individual lamps. We are individual candles. We are individual lights. Are we brightening our world? Are we light as we leave here? Are we spreading that light? When people drive by, when people come into our community, are we shining a light that makes a difference, that works to put out the darkness? This is something that the church must take very seriously something that Jesus continually refers to in these first few chapters, and it's in line with how he prepped the church and its members back in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, in these days, you didn't have flashlights and there weren't street lights. You had a lantern that you would put oil in and you would go out into the darkness. And back then, whenever there was no, there was no light pollution, it was dark outside, you could not see Unless you had a lantern, Jesus says, keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. 
You'll recall back at the church of Laodicea, Jesus stood at the door and knocked and they were not ready to open up because they feared or they weren't where they needed to be with him. But this, this picture is someone gladly excited that the master has arrived. Are we keeping our lamps burning so that we might you know, rejoice when he comes? Jesus said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. What is it talking about? It's meaning, are we being lights? Are we living up to our name? Lamps, candles, lights of the world, which has really been our conversation every week, hasn't it? How are we doing with the time we've been given on the stage in the church age? You know, we are entering into the season of lights. Really, this day is uh, full of lights. Jack-o'-lanterns will be lit tonight. Lights are spread up all around. And as we get into the holiday season, Christmas lights will be uh, strung up very quickly, very soon, and be turned up bright. And as we celebrate the day and kickstart the season, it's fitting that we consider this today. I mean, think about it. God has given us a sacred mission. God has given us a holy identity to be his ambassadors, to be his lights, to be his light bearers. Have you ever thought about that? Do you realize what he's invited you to be a part of? You know, we all serve a master. Some of us serve several masters. Every single day, we are all constrained and compelled by some authority. Maybe you set the authority for yourself or you bow to some other authority. Maybe it's your own goals, your own dreams, your own passions. Maybe it's your spouse or someone that you love. Maybe it's your political party. Maybe it's your workplace, your family. We all obey somebody. We all serve somebody or something, whether it's ourselves or somebody else. Do you realize that God has invited you and called you to serve him? that God has given you an incredible opportunity? Does it ever dawn on you and that you've been given a chance to participate in the kingdom of God and that all that you've been blessed with is a means with which you get to leverage and better serve him? I want to look around and just think, none of this will be here one day. Nothing, that, all the things that we lean on and, and walk around and, and take our hands on every single day, none of this will be here one day the things that we love, the things that we loathe, all of it will be gone. The things we work hard to protect, the things that we work hard to put behind us, one day, all of those goalposts will matter no more. Revelation reminds us the goalpost of heaven is ever nearing and it asks us, what are we doing with our time on the stage? What are we doing with our starring role in the church age? This book confronts us and reminds us and calls us to renew and reform our commitment to Jesus or begin a commitment if we haven't yet. Echoing the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. Let me say a word there. When we talk about lights, we don't mean lights that blind people. We mean lights that make things better for people. We mean lights that show people the way. Love is not blinding. Love is caring. It's delicate. It's for the good of somebody else. That's what drives us as Christians or what should be driving us as Christians because we've concluded this. He died for all, all people. Jesus died for everyone so that we who know him may no longer live for ourselves but for him who for their sake, for our sake, 
died and was raised. Is that your motivation? Is that what drives you as a Christian? The love of God controls us and compels us to remember this and no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Paul says all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message or it should be our message every day. Revelation addresses us, ambassadors, light bearers, lampstands, members of the church. It directs our attention and it directs our goal. Beyond chapter three, the book of Revelation has a very interesting layout. Chapters four and five feature John getting called up to heaven to see, uh, to show the church where our hearts are knitted to or should be knitted to and, and give us a glimpse at the epicenter of all things. These two chapters are gonna sync our hearts with what should be driving our mission. And then the scene pans back to the struggle the people of God face on earth against the forces of this world. John sees all that stuff happening uh, from chapter 6 to the end from heaven's perspective, though, which is so important. It's a picture of how even though the church may be going through the battles on earth, even though we face trials and tests, temptations and trouble, our hearts are tethered to, our strength flows from, our future is secured in heaven above. You know why I think God gave John the vision of heaven before he sees the awful situation that the Christians will face on earth, that we may face on earth? Because it reminds us where our heart is tethered to, where our strength always comes from, and it shows us that our future is secured in heaven above. No matter what, the saints of God are in the scene as John sees it. Ultimately, heaven is our reward for being faithful and taking our mission so seriously. The end of Revelation swings back to heaven and shows the fulfillment of what's promised all along, the completion of God's promise to reclaim and restore the earth. As we put a bow on this series today, I hope God's word, I hope God's word to us in Revelations 4 and 5 will compel us to seize this opportunity that God has given us and maybe see each day in a different, brighter, and bolder light. I think today of all days is an especially great time to have this conversation. If you don't know the significance of this day in history, then don't worry, we'll catch you up in a few minutes. But first, I want you to just follow along and read with us Revelations 4, 1 through 11. The whole chapter are very short, but so important. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. He who sat on the throne was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne was 24 elders or 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns on gold of gold on their heads. And from the throne preceded light, lightnings, thunderings, voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes on front and, and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like the, had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
The four living creatures, each had six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night saying, I know the temptation is to get lost in what the creatures look like, but I want us to focus on what the creatures were doing. They do not rest day or night saying, and I think the better word is singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they exist and were created. What a powerful confession made by these elders, as it says, is being made day in and day out. Revelation 4 invites John up, invites every Christian up to heaven and offers us a perspective that will change our lives if we'll adopt it as our daily lens. Think about how this world would have landed, how this word would have landed with the churches that it was originally sent to back in uh, the early days, the seven that were just addressed in chapters two and three. This is the scene above us at all times. As they were worried, as they were preoccupied, as they were compromised, as they were caught up in all the things of this world, John says, if you just lift your eyes to heaven, if you just look up, this is the scene at every hour. Verse 11 is the standout and should influence us in so many ways. The elders proclaim, you are worthy, O Lord. And the way that they're saying that suggests you alone are worthy, O Lord, of glory and honor and power. There's a lot of things in this world that are trying to get the honor and the glory and the power. Some of us spend our days trying to get honor and glory and power. There are institutions and there are establishments and there are organizations. Their goal is to try to get as much glory, as much honor, and as much power as they can. Maybe that's the goal that you think every human should aspire for. But these elders remind us that there is only one who is worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the power. And his name is Jesus. You alone are worthy. And I gotta ask the question, do our lives proclaim that Jesus is worthy? Does our life proclaim that? See, our lives are proclaiming that something's worthy at all times. Every dollar we spend, every investment we make, every hour we spend doing this or that, we are saying, hey, this is worth my time. This is worth my money. This is worth my attention. This is worth my life. Do our lives proclaim that Jesus is worthy? Or are we proclaiming something or somebody else's worth with our words? in our deeds. I mean, consider that question. Who or what are our lifestyles and our choices ascribing worth to? What are we pointing to with our lives? Who are we pointing to with our lives? Are we pointing in the mirror? Are we pointing across at someone else? Are we pointing to somebody, somebody somewhere far away that doesn't even care about us, but we think that we've got to somehow honor them or point to them? 
the time we spend, the money we spend, the effort we put forth, they all tell a story. We're saying this or that is worthy of glory and honor and praise. But verse 11 says, there is only one who is worthy. Do you hear that? Jesus is worthy. Why is he worthy? He created all things. By his will, all things exist. By his will, all things were created. For his glory, all things were created. You know, in many ways, in most ways, the church addresses, church's address prior to this were saying that everything and everyone was worthy but God. The lives they lived, the decisions they made, the investments they were making, they were pointing to things besides Jesus. Throughout history, the church has lost Sight of verse 11, lost sight of heaven. As a result, we've all lost sight of verse 11. It's the church's job to exalt the Lord, to lift up his name and his kingdom, to remind us that there is no other name, there is no other throne, there is no other king worthy of our devotion but Jesus. It's every member's calling, it's every believer's calling to continually renew and reform our hearts around him so that our lights may shine brighter than ever. A little over 500 years ago, there was a great shadow that fell over the church and many of its members, most of its members. As this premise, this passion from verse 11 had been buried by the church a certain German preacher had been feeling disenchanted and discouraged with his profession and his faith. He considered leaving the movement entirely because he just didn't feel like nobody really considered the most important thing anymore. He felt that the church had lost touch with its true self, wandered far from where God intended it to be, and he began searching the scriptures to see if his hunch was legit. Now, mind you, the church was not marginalized at this point in history. It was not facing persecution. The church of this man's day was very powerful and very rich, very prominent. It was joined at the hip with the local governments. Being a part of it was popular and beneficial as it perhaps ever had been or ever would be. So the church was not facing any kind of great trouble at this time externally. The church was not lacking in membership or attendance. There was a sense of obligation. Almost every citizen of the country and of the land was faithful to their churches week after week. It also appeared that the church was as on mission as ever, sparking quests that sent teams across the ocean to unknown lands, proclaiming the growth of the church and the glory of God as their motivation. But also there was gold. <laughs> but from the outside looking in, the church had power and had people and was growing exponentially. So people begin to wonder, what are you worried about? Everything seems fine. As far as the laity and most members understood, this was the only version of the church they ever knew. This was how church was meant to be because the only Bible they ever heard was from the pulpits. The printing press was very low, very new, and uh, even with it, the church was not in a hurry to get Bible into, Bibles into people's hands in these days. They felt for the necessity to, of controlling the message to keep unity, Bibles did not leave pulpits in churches. The preachers were watched under a microscope to ensure that they all preached a similar message, a message that confirmed and supported the church in its power and maintained unity. But secretly behind closed doors, there were a few preachers that knew something was not right. As they studied the Bible and taught the Bible, they knew there was so much they had gotten wrong. But there's the biggest issue. 
so much besides the Bible and in addition to the Bible had gotten into and onto the foundation of the church. Even with the Bible being there, there were so many filters laid over it and so many overlays meant to inform and guide their teaching. The foundation of God's word and the litmus test that the Bible holds itself to had been set aside for an ever-changing catechism controlled by church leadership and bureaucracy. Over the previous 1,000 years of church history, slowly but surely, the church had shifted from its foundation of Scripture. You think, well, how did this happen and where did this stem from? Well, it was a combined, it was from a combined place uh, of both fear and ego, and we'll get to that. But we're familiar with the reality the church from the very beginning was persecuted right out of the gate. It faced an uphill battle from 30 AD to around 315 AD. The church was marginalized. The church was hunted. The church was in danger. The Roman Empire was, uh, was so saturated with Christianity that eventually the sitting emperor himself, Constantine, became a Christian. And while that was an awesome, miraculous thing, it did not lead to awesome or spiritual things. Not a few decades later, after trading the shadows for the spotlight, alleys for main streets, the underground for the main stage, the church got organized and it also was infiltrated. Infiltrated by values and virtues of an empire, which again, the, true, two, the two driving forces were fear and fame. The church began to fear about going back to the way things were. They didn't want to go back to when they weren't in control. They didn't want to go back to being the little guy. They wanted the power and they kind of liked it. They were afraid of going back to times of persecution and times of trouble. As the church and state governments began working together and in step, the church in many ways began deferring to the state because it couldn't bear getting in the way and it couldn't bear getting left behind. Slowly but surely, leaders compromise here and there in order to justify the decisions and concessions being made. At the same time, as the leaders began concentrating power and more and more people became obligated by law to attend church and to give, it, and to, give to it, ego and fame began to dominate the hearts of the men in charge. And so over the course of the next 1,000 or 1,200 years, the church became something much different than the Bible ever intended it to be. The church, meant to be an outpost for the kingdom of God, spreading the gospel, became an arm of the kingdoms of man, upholding the latest trends and ideologies. And this was not something that happened overnight, but slowly but surely, as fear and fame became the motivating factors, as the church began to get more and more power and get more and more comfortable, from year 300 to year 13, year 1400, the church no longer was an outpost for the kingdom of God pointing to a greater day to come. The church was an arm of the kingdoms of man pointing to who was in charge, preserving what was, not pointing to what was next. The decisions made and lifestyles fostered were not proclaiming worthy is the Lord, but were preserving and promoting the worth of everything else. The church leaders were easy to manipulate at first, seeking the approval of man, until eventually the church leaders began doing the manipulating themselves. If you study church history in this period of world history from year 300 to year 1500 or so, it's called the Dark Ages because of all the sickness and all the war, but it's also because it was a very dark time for the church. 
The church was all politics and all prosperity. The church, the gospel was secondary. It was maybe even farther down the list. How could the gospel be proclaimed when Jesus was not being exalted as king? There was no semblance of needing to be saved from this world because the church's strategy was all about joining with this world. Now, it wasn't all bad during this time. The Bible was still being read and it was still being preached. And even with the additions, the truth still got out. But it was only in the laps of a a select few that had the ability to spread the true gospel and lead from the true authority, the scripture, the Holy Bible. And as a direct product of drifting from the Bible, many of the non-negotiable tenets of Christianity fell by the wayside during this time. The church began to preach that salvation was not by faith alone, but required good works and contributions to ensure that you could be saved. The church began to preach that you had to earn God's approval and begin valuing and chasing the favor of this world rather than resting in God's abundant and amazing grace. The church exalted men, kings and princes, priests, and a single bishop called the Pope and taught that the powers of the church and the powers of the world were crucial at ensuring that we have a right standing with God. And without the world on our side, we may never get God's approval. Walking away from the cornerstone of Christianity that says that in Christ alone we find our rest and our strength, our hope, and our salvation. With all the focus shifting towards power and prosperity in and of the world, walking away from the scripture, embracing religion over a relationship with Jesus, It's no surprise that the Bible's presiding and overarching purpose for our lives was lost and replaced with a shallow and pathetic substitute. The world teaches and trains everybody to seek their own glory and their own fame. But in a world full of billions, that seems so small. So we aspire for the glory of our house, the glory of whatever business or whatever team or whatever nation bears our name or houses us. All throughout history, mankind has sought the glory of tribes and lands and countries and kingdoms. And as the church lost track of basically everything, so too did it miss this perhaps most important pillar laid out so perfectly in chapter four, verse 11, that there is only one who is worthy. There is only one who should receive our glory and our all glory and honor and power. There is one who created all things and there is one who by his will all things exist and all things persist. The Bible speaks of this all over the place. Isaiah 43, the Bible says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, there is only one. I am the Lord and there is no other. You and I were created for the glory of God. We were created for his fame and his renown. There are so many verses that confirm this, yet we resist this. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's abrupt and it's abrasive. Our nature resists this out of some misplaced sense of self-preservation when in reality, the more we seek our own glory, the closer we come to self-destruction. Isn't it true? The more we try to save ourselves, the more sure it is that we will lose ourselves. I think a very wise man said something like that one day. God created us, but we rebelled and have been rebelling ever since. God enacted a plan to save and redeem us, and we still have went our own way. God is the source of life and is due all the glory and honor and praise. And Christianity at its core is about bringing God the glory he deserves. 
Jesus came to do what no person had or would ever do. Glorify his father through perfect obedience. And when he died, he glorified God through total surrender and by absolving sin. Yes, Jesus died for us. Yes, Jesus loves us. But more than that, he died to bring glory to God, to remove the offense of sin and replace it with atonement of his own blood. And all the more, in his burial and resurrection, he proved God is supreme over death and God is all-powerful over the grave. And therefore, by his grace, all people can be saved and learn what it means to live a life that glorifies God. Jesus came to put in right place what Adam had gotten wrong. His life, his death, and his resurrection brought ultimate glory to God. And so by God's grace and in Christ alone, our life can be transformed for his glory. This is the purpose of the church, to spread this message, to empower lives and build communities around the hope of Jesus Christ. While this sounds obvious, it's so easy for this to become deprioritized in local church. In some cases, churches become all about our own agendas. Christianity becomes about our own advancement. But where is Christ's lordship in that? Where is God's glory in that? It's been erased. When these constant, these pillars, these non-negotiables get moved out of the way, the church moves away from them, and the church becomes just another place. Christianity becomes just a sticker and just a box that we check. We begin fighting for people's time and attention, investments and money like we're just one thing that matters. But the church is not and must never become just another organization. Christianity cannot be degraded as just a category. It's much more than that. It's much bigger than that. It's much better than that. 500 years ago, a group of disgruntled, disenchanted, discouraged preachers and church leaders all across Europe had watched the church become this arm of the world that peddled the agendas of man. They helped carry water in the process and saw the church fade from where the Bible called it to be, from who the Bible defined it as. This group of men and women did not know what they were paving or that they were paving the way for a movement that would see the church rediscover itself, be renewed and reformed and restored to its biblical self. Not all found the courage they could stand, but the discourse and conversations eventually filled the air with something that would prove irresistible and would change the world. Out of that era and that scholarship that came from that period, the foundation of the church was dusted off and brought into new light. Five specific doctrines or mantras came to the surface from this period that helped redirect the church and bring a true restoration, a true reformation. You've probably heard them or seen them referred to in their Latin forms called the five solas. And we've, call it, we've already covered them in tracking how the church drifted, but these five would become guidelines and goalposts for the church going forward. That our foundation is scripture alone. Not man's agenda, not man's addition, not something that we've come up with in our time and place, but the scripture that reveals the story of God, the beginning through the nation of Israel, the coming of Christ and the church that he founded through the men that he equipped and gave inspiration. The scripture is our foundation and, by, and our salvation is by faith alone, not what we do, not our works, lest any of us should boast, by faith, by trusting in Jesus' finished work. We are not saved by what we do or by what we we haven't done we are saved by trusting in Jesus because he's the only one that got it right 
And that's why we are saved by grace alone, not our merit, not someone else's approval. We are saved by the kindness of God who loves us, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is. We're saved by faith alone, by grace alone. We are saved in Christ alone. Not through a preacher, not through a specific church or a specific gathering. We are saved through Jesus Christ in a personal relationship with him. We are saved and we are called on this mission for the glory of God alone. And that's what guides it all. We are saved for the glory of God and God's glory is, the, is what inspires and drives all of us. It's for his glory because he alone is worthy. These household concepts, these common convictions almost weren't so common because while there were many who quietly expressed concern and had made known their frustration, nobody was willing or nobody felt like they were in the position to speak out or step out. And while it's easy to criticize, it was understandable. The church taught that the Pope had the power to excommunicate people from their faith and essentially condemn people to hell. So no one dared step up and speak out. But there was one German preacher who couldn't keep it quiet any longer who famously stood on the steps of the church in Wittenberg with a list of grievances and reproofs of all the areas that the church had drifted away. And on October the 31st, 1517, on All Hallows' Eve, on today, 504 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door and began an age of reformation that brought sweeping renewal to the church from every corner, the church that he left, the church that he started, all of them found reformation through his boldness, through his courage. Luther stood before a council with threat, which threatened him with excommunication four years later. After he had boldly preached and made rounds with his message, he told them that his call for reformation was rooted in Scripture and restoring Christ in his mission to the center of the church, to restore the true message and nature of salvation, which he did. He said, here I stand, I can do no other, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, amen. Luther would go on to preach and write and preach about how God indeed was working to reclaim and restore the earth. But he was waiting for and calling his church to renew and reform its faith in him. The Catholic church that he left later would even say, yeah, Luther had it right. Luther, we should have listened to Luther uh, and brought that reformation to their own congregation. But we, all these years later, are products of that reformation. We as evangelicals are, uh, are followers of that Protestant movement. We in many ways, though, have drifted farther from the church, farther from the scriptures than the church of Luther's day. In so many ways, we need to hear John's witness of heaven. We need to heed Luther's call to reform so that our lives might honor God and our mission might be completed. In Revelations 5, John hears many in heaven wonder if the earth will ever be restored, wonder if things could ever be made new. A scroll was passed around that many believe was the title deed of the earth, sealed by sin and judgment, and no one could break its seals. No one could reclaim it. But down in chapter five, verse six, John sees somebody step up. I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Then he who had taken the scroll, the, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Jesus reclaimed the earth for his glory in his death and his resurrection. And this scripture tells us that the only future there is for this earth is in him and by him and for him. When this age ends, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And this earth will be restored to where it was always meant to be. But the only future there is for you and I, for anyone else and for this world is in him and by him and for his glory. Church, are we proclaiming this message? Are we singing this song down in verse 12, John hears the elders singing another song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven or on earth and under the heaven were singing this song. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. These elders like Luther after them and many more said here we stand, we can do nothing except that which honors and praises the one and only king. On this anniversary of the Reformation, may we, the church of Jesus Christ, remember who we are and remember whose we are. Take a stand like those who went before us and fall down like the elders did and commit to ascribing the glory, the honor, and the praise to Jesus that is worthy and who is worthy of all the praise with all that we are and all that we do. Can we commit to ascribing him the glory that he is worthy of with all that we are and with all that we do? He is the Lord and there is none other. There is no one like him and there is no one but him who should rule and guide our lives. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for letting us come into the house today and be reminded that you alone are worthy. You alone are seated on a throne above all other thrones. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you've invited us into this story. You've given us a role in this story. You've given us a place on this stage for your uh, exaltation, for your uh, honor, for your glory, and for your name. Lord, would you move in the house today and bring all of us to a place uh, of, of confession that we haven't always honored you. We haven't always pointed to you. We haven't always ascribed all the worth to you. We've all drifted from that. May we take a cue from the ones that went before us and take a stand today and point to heaven above 
wherein our hearts are tethered, our strength is from, and where our future is secured. Lord, may today we rest, we renew our commitment and reform our commitment around the Bible and what it teaches and around the core pillars of our faith so that we might be the lights you have called us to be, pointing to the one and only King. You are the Lord and there is no other. We ask this in Jesus' name.